Thanks, Christine. Well, good evening and welcome to Uni Church. I want to add my welcome to Mings. My name's Rowan, one of the pastors here. And tonight we get into some technical detail about families, uh, about widows, about feet washing. There's a number of interesting things and lots of questions might come up. So I'd love for you to text through your questions and we can get into some, some spicy ones afterwards um, to the number on the screen. Why don't we pray together uh, as we come to this part of God's Word tonight and ask God to help us to see it from His view. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you speak to us. That as we come here with all the ups and downs of life going on, that your word reaches out and fixes our eyes on the right way to live, the good way to live. We ask that by your spirit tonight, you might comfort us with the great hope of what it is to live as your family. You might challenge us. You might, by your spirit, put your finger on where we need to change what sin we need to cut out of our lives and what areas we need to fill with our lives with joy in. So we ask tonight that it might be transforming, as we've heard your word read, that you might shape us to live that out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1979, the American vocal group Sister Sledge called the whole world to get up and sing with them about something that was actually quite common but so profoundly deep that it captured the world. Three words and an incredible bass line is all it took for everyone to sing, we are family, right? Come on, guys. This is such an important song. That year, it shot to number two on the American pop chart history, number one in the R&B pop charts of that year. Last year, 2022, Rolling Stone magazine ranked it as number 34 on the greatest dance songs of all time. Now, I know there's more, like there's like 33 more, but still, that's, that's a pretty important song. And if you listen to the lyrics, there isn't really that much there. Uh, everyone can see we're together. We all walk on by. We fly just like birds of the feather, and I won't tell no lie. All the people around us, they say, yeah, yeah. Can they be that close? Let me just state for the record, we're giving love in a family dose. We are family. Now, you're thinking, what's so important about this song? Well, firstly, it went on for 8 minutes and 19 seconds. That's a long song. Maybe that's why it got so much airtime, because it just had to play for so long, and everyone's bobbing. And it has an incredible bass riff, Right? But there's something about the concept of family that captures our hearts, unlike any other human gathering that we have. Almost intrinsically, we kind of recognize there's something special about family, something important, not just about the idea of family, but the people who make ours up. Have you ever wondered why? Why is family so important to us? Why do we almost universally gravitate to this idea of family? Now, I recognize that not everyone's experience of family has been a good one. But the pain a broken family causes shows us just how important we think family is. I mean, we've got our our work colleagues, our friends and our neighbors, but whenever we want to describe a group of people, uh, some relationships as super close, we default to, they're just, they're part of my family. See, family is in it for the long haul, aren't they? You don't really get voted out of your family. You don't really, although sometimes we'd like to push people out of families. <laughs> it's not something that you walk out on, at least not, with, not without significant pain. 
Family is not temporary or fleeting, but it's this enduring relationships of people who are quite often very different from one another. I don't know what your family gatherings are like, but mine sometimes are quite odd. Not everyone gets on, but still, we choose to love each other anyway because we are family. What's interesting is, as we get to this part of God's Word, we see that the Apostle Paul chooses to use that word family to describe what is going on right here, right now. That we are family. 1 Timothy 3.15, the kind of key purpose verse of the book of 1 Timothy says this, I've written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Right, that word, their household, is the word that is used to describe the family unit. In Joshua 24, 15, Joshua says, As for me and my family, and that word family there is actually the word house. As for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. Family and household are the same thing. And what Paul is saying about this local church gathering that he's writing to in Ephesus, and this local church gathering that we have here tonight at Uni Church is that we are family. I wonder, is that your view of what we are doing right here and right now? As you look around at the people here in the room, do you kind of go, yeah, we're family? Or do you go, yeah, but not you? <laughs> See, for many of us, we all have different views on what church is. Some of us, we think of church as kind of like a building, a place to have some sort of spiritual experience, to hear from God and to be a me and God thing. And we kind of ignore others around us. We might come to church, have a listen, see what God has to say, then just kind of zip out the back before the end and not really talk to anyone else. For others of us, we might have a view of church as a, as a service provider, we come to consume the provision church gives us, you know, and we, we expect it to deliver. Church was good tonight because I, I found some good friends or I chatted with my friends. Church had some really good teaching that really kind of grew me and that was great. Or the, or the music was, was so good. All that quality food we had before church, man, those cheeses were awesome. I'll do cheeses for Jesus all the time, right? And that's what matters. That's how we kind of rate what church is about. For others of us, maybe church can be a bit more like a, a social club, a gathering of, of friends, something that we, we dip into and, and kind of zip out of when we've got time. When it suits us, we might be like, yeah, for this season, I was, I was part of that church and it was, was good for me for a while, but then I kind of moved on somewhere else and went to another circle of friends and no hard feelings. Life just goes on. But as we listen to what God says about this, we see God has a very different view of church. It's his household. It's his family. There's a, there's a deep commitment and connection he wants us to have with one another. And like a natural family, when someone does something dumb, we, we're not to ghost them or kind of look for a new family or vote them off the island. We're to love them. Tell them that they're dumb. That was a dumb thing to do. But we still stick by them and walk alongside them and help one another keep serving Jesus and loving him. Now, some people kind of hear this and like, yeah, but church, it'll never be like the kind of relationships I have in my blood family, my blood relatives. But I want to point something out for you tonight. You see, if you are here and you trust in Jesus, you'll recognize that because of Jesus' death on the cross, because of his blood shed for you, you and I can stand forgiven before God. We can be part of God's family 
We can be called His children. We can call God our Father and Jesus our brother. And we have God the Spirit living in us. We have a new identity, adopted as part of God's family, bought by the precious blood of God the Son. Here's the somewhat profound news. This family, the church family, will last longer than any of our natural families ever will. Now, thankfully, when Jesus returns, we'll be transformed, so you won't have to put up with sinful Rowan forever. As part of this, you're like, oh, it's actually made more like Jesus and, and perfected in the twinkling of an eye. Man, am I looking forward to that, right? But I want us to see that God's family is actually the most enduring family we will ever be a part of. What we're praying for, for our natural families, is that they might be part of God's family that lasts forever. That's why we keep inviting our our, our family and our friends to to come along to Explaining Christianity, to hear the news of who Jesus is, and we pray for opportunities to share the hope we have because we want people to be part of God's family and experience the joy of knowing our sins are forgiven and our future is secure, being in relationship with with our God who made us. we, we, We long that for others. And if you're here tonight, you've been invited along by some friend or some family relation, do you know they don't just want you to be part of their club. The person who invited you here wants you to know Jesus and to know a, a hope that lasts forever and to be part of a family that does not end with an inheritance that doesn't perish, spoil or fade. That's why we long for you to see who Jesus is. Well, as we head into this section of 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're going to see that God's church is a family that's relational and ordered. Let me say it again. It's kind of like your headline, big idea. God's family is a church that's relational and ordered. Paul gives instructions here to his protege, Timothy, on the thing that we need to see in the local church is that God's family is both relational and ordered. Look with me, Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. Paul says, Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. So much of our Western culture, the air that we breathe, pushes us towards individualism, doesn't it? Where, you know, the relationships we have to others doesn't really define me very much. You know, no one else can define me. I define myself. I am who I say I am, or generally, I am who I feel I am. If I feel this way, then I am that way. You, know, you can be whoever you want to be. And we keep saying that, and we keep thinking that. And the way our culture relates is a very flat way of relating. It doesn't really look at the order and relationships that we have. We call our prime minister by their first name. Our boss is just another one of us, a lecturer by their first name. My kids at school have to call their teachers by their first name. I think there's there's a lack of respect that's there. Maybe I'm just like, okay, boomer, whatever. You know, get over yourself. This is the way the world is. But our world says that there, there can be no difference between people of different ages or people of different sexes and genders. Um, just last year, I was I was walking into a building in the city. And I went to walk through the door and I, and I opened the door and noticed there was a woman walking behind me. And as I opened it, I was just being nice. I was just like, oh, after you. And she looked at me with this face of disgust and kind of said, what, do you think I can't open the door? 
And then we played this like game of chicken where she just stood there waiting for me to go in. I stood there with the door open. I'm like, who's gonna, what's going to happen here? We're just standing here. I'm like, oh, whatever, I'll go, fine. If you don't want me to open the door, I won't. But it's kind of like I was the one who was wrong. And, and maybe you're sitting there tonight and you're thinking, yeah, that's right, because there isn't any difference. I want to hold out to you. God's Word says something different. And we need to shape our view of the way we relate as family and, and the order that we have around what God says. See, when we think about showing honour and respect to someone, who walks in a door first sounds a little pedantic, doesn't it? Who cares? Is that really what we're going to spend tonight thinking about in all the problems of the world? Is this what matters? But just start to think for a moment about the way we treat older people. Ask anyone who works in healthcare, and they'll tell you that some of the most marginalised people in our society are the aged. We've recently legalised euthanasia. And the people that have the most to lose are actually some of the most vulnerable If we treat everyone the same, then it's the able who will win. And those who are less able who will lose out every time. As Paul here speaks to Timothy about how God's church ought to operate, he's really clear that like the natural family, relationships matter, as does order. Now, we need to recognize Paul's giving instructions to Timothy here as a leader of this church, how he should act as a leader of this community But as he does that, he's setting an example of how we should act as a church family as well and how a church family can flourish. So he says in 1 Timothy 5 verse 1, and this is point number one on your outline, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. The church family is to act and to treat older men as fathers. Point number one, older men as fathers. Now, the reality is in any church gathering like any family, people will need to be corrected. You've got that weird uncle that always drinks too much. It's kind of, you know, at, at the barbecue or some other one who always does that, you know, pull my finger jokes. You know, can you pull my finger? And just, anyway, maybe you don't have that in your family. What a blessing. What a blessing that is. But people will need to be corrected in the church family as well. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, Paul tells us, is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, and for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As we're part of this family, we ought to come expecting that we're going to sharpen one another, we're going to encourage one another, we're going to be rebuked at times, we're going to be corrected and equipped and and, and stood alongside as the Word of God does its work. That's good. And in a family, a natural family, that's kind of what you want. There's a helpfulness to it. And so there's also going to be correction that happens. And as Paul writes to Timothy, he's saying the way that you relate to one another in this church family differs around the axis of age and gender. Timothy is a younger man and he's to show right honour as a leader of the church as he provides correction and encouragement to the, the older men in this church. Now, firstly... It's not that Timothy is to say nothing. I think sometimes that's what we do. We kind of go, oh, there's someone there. I'm not sure how I should relate to them. They're older than me. I just won't say anything. Maybe that's part of your cultural background and heritage. I respect my elders by not ever correcting them. Maybe if they were driving a car off a cliff and were blissfully unaware of the cliff, would you be like, oh, that's their prerogative? Not if you love them. You'd be like, oh, you want to speak to them in a way that, that's, that's helpful. And again... Our culture pushes us to flatten out relationships. I mean, how often have you felt the, the kind of welling up inside you, the right thing to do is to kind of laugh at people with outdated ideas. Oh, 
I can't believe you think that. That's such an old-fashioned idea. My grandparents used to do that. We are well beyond that now, right? We see people that are a little less energetic, and we just go along, and we okay boom in them, and whatever. We just move, and we're happy, and we think we're best. We're standing on our point going, look, I know better. I've been to university in a time I can actually remember it, unlike you. I'm not sure they had university when Adam was a boy and you were around. And we have this kind of attitude that we look to others and we kind of marginalize them who are older than us. But that's not how God wants us to act in his family. There's a right honor and respect for those that are older, for Timothy, who's a leader of the church, to even have with those who are older. Let me ask you, where are you tempted to speak to those that are older than you in a disrespectful way? And think that it's okay because we're just flat. God's word says no. The Old Testament tells us we should honor our father and mother. We ought to look up to them. In verse 4, Paul tells us that children and grandchildren should practice godliness towards their own family first and repay their parents for this pleases God. There's something that we, as children, owe to our parents, and that is honor and respect at least. And the church family, like the Christian family, those that are older than us ought to be looked up to and honored. Now, I know the age differences amongst us aren't huge, but there's a reality that I think some are going to have more experience and we shouldn't just write them off and go, whatever, you're so old. That sort of joking shouldn't happen. We're going to stop that. So how do we do it, though? Because we still want to speak into the lives of those that are older. And Timothy's called to do that. Well, imagine for a moment you're going to give some feedback to your dad. Are you going to do that in a way that's that's gentle and respectful? Something like, look, Dad, I I love you. And I know you love God, but I'm just a bit concerned about the way you've been speaking to Mum lately. I know you've been tired, but it's just felt super snappy, and I'm not sure you're aware of it. And I just wanted to bring it up. It's very different to the way you might speak to a child, right? Hey, stop that. That's wrong. Don't do it again. Do not speak to your mother that way. <laughs> I've said those words. <laughs> or, 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 Dad, I, I just noticed the way that work seems to be squeezing out kind of your passion and your love for God. And I just I wanted to share it with you. It, it's respectful in the way it's brought up, right? So we are to act towards those that are older within the church family. We're to look up to those that are older than us. But the second thing Paul tells us is that we should never look down to those that are younger than us. We should look up to those that are older than us and never look down to those that are younger than us. Point number two, Paul tells Timothy to treat younger men as brothers. Younger men as brothers. Now, in the brokenness of our world, means we've got all sorts of distorted relationships and views on how we think of what brothers do. I mean, think back in human history. Who was the first brother in human history, right? Cain. What did he do? Killed his brother. That is not how we're to act in the normal relationships toward brothers. Although sometimes, I know that's what family relationships are like. For a while, we want to kill our brothers. But that's not... The, oh, that's a bit... Who else do we think of that's got brotherly relationships within the Scriptures? We get to Joseph, and that didn't end well for him, did it? He had a dream, his brothers wanted to kill him, but they're like, nah, let's not kill him, let's make money off him instead. So we'll sell him into slavery, make some money, tell our dad he was eaten by some goat, and then we'll get on with life, and we'll be happy. These are not good examples of how we're to treat younger men as brothers. Not like that. But the Joseph story does give us a much better example of how to treat a brother towards the end in the way they treat their youngest brother, Benjamin. 
If you remember Genesis 43, they gathered in front of Joseph, but they don't know it's their brother. He's been placed in this high position of leadership. And he's the one who's dishing out the food throughout the famine, and they've come begging for food. He sent them away. He's then said, you need to bring the brother Benjamin back, knowing that this is the father's kind of youngest child, and they cared, and they promised their dad they'd bring Benjamin back to him, and they're standing there. And then they find that Benjamin is the one that needs to stay. And Judah, the very one at the beginning who decided, who suggested he should sell Joseph into slavery, says these words, Genesis 44, verse 3. Now please, Joseph, he doesn't know it's Joseph, but now please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy Benjamin. Let Benjamin go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father without Benjamin? I couldn't bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. Here... A brother that loves his brother and honors his father. Just a few chapters earlier, Judah had wanted to sell Joseph into slavery. And now, unbeknownst to Judah, he stands in front of that very brother he sold and does to Benjamin what he should have done to Joseph. Stood up for him. Loved Benjamin. Treated him as his equal. Not someone to be kind of dispensed of or profited from. The ultimate older brother Is it not Jesus on the cross who happily gives up his life for God's family? Rather than use his family, God's family, for his own comfort and pleasure, Jesus says, not my will but yours. And he loves us by laying down his life. That's how we are to treat those who are younger than us. So many times in my life, I've had older men come alongside me who have really encouraged me. Uh, They've treated me as an equal. They've humored my impatience and my lack of wisdom and just let me kind of say dumb stuff and then lovingly kind of correct me over time, but have really treated me as an equal. My my first job out of Bible college was really, was with with someone that I I really respected. In fact, he he was one of my my heroes. I'd grown up going to big Christian conferences in Australia uh, and this guy was preaching at them. It would be three, 4,000 people and he was like the keynote preacher. Well, I got to work for him which was such a privilege and at the same time quite scary because you're like, well, this is, this is kind of this hero of mine that I have. And, and one of the things that really encouraged me about working alongside that boss was he would always look for a way to include me at his level. One time we were at a conference and um, he was speaking at this conference and I was just there as kind of coming along and um, someone asked a question at question time and he was like, oh, I could give you an answer, but actually, Rowan, can you just stand up? He knew I was there. And then he got me to answer this question in front of this conference. He he was kind of showing his confidence in me. Even though he towered above me as a giant, he just included me and brought me along. And it was so, so empowering and helpful. That's what it should feel like to be part of a family that God calls a local church. Where we look up to those that are older and we... We don't look down on those that are younger, but we look across, we encourage, we look to pour into one another. We're not taking one another out at the knees like some squabbling brothers being like, I don't like you and hassling one another. But we're looking to encourage each other, to invest in one another and to see one another standing firm in Jesus on that last day. Doesn't that sound attractive? Doesn't that sound like a part of a family you want to be a part of? A part of a family that you want to be? That's not the only difference that shapes how we relate to one another. Age isn't the only difference, but gender is as well. So point number three, Timothy is to treat older women as mothers. He's to treat older women as mothers. 
In Romans 16, uh, Paul writes this lovely greeting uh, to Rufus. He says this, Romans 16, verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Do you hear that? The Apostle Paul says to greet Rufus, who's been chosen in the Lord, is a believer, and Rufus's mother, who's been a mother to me as well. To hear the, the affection and the action that lies behind, behind those words, in some ways, this, this Rufus's mum has been a spiritual mother to Paul and encouraged him in some way. I think of um, two older women in my life, besides my own natural mother, who've, who've mothered me in the Lord. One was a woman by the name of Mrs. Round. She came along to my primary school when I had no other Christians in my class at primary school. And she taught Bible in schools in, in my primary school class. And she stood up the front and talked about the need to trust Jesus and what Jesus had done. And as people threw condescending questions at her, she just answered them with this warmth and this grace and this clarity, pointing people to who Jesus was and the need to come to him. She believed hell was real and the only solution was Jesus and his death on the cross. And she just oozed joy as she spoke. No matter what people said, she was there. She was consistent. She was solid. Everyone in the room could see that. That she had this hope and a certainty that God was in control and that Jesus was coming back again. And she had a profound influence on the way I spoke to and, and, and talked to my other classmates about Jesus and that I could live for him. The other one was a woman by the name of June Riley. She's part of the reason Sarah and I ended up moving to New Zealand. Her grandson moved from New Zealand uh, to Australia for four years to do university. We were studying the same kind of course. We were both into music. We both rode motorbikes. We kind of had lots in common. And June, this is my friend's, grandma, um, my friend's grandmother. She was just such a godly woman. Uh, my friend moved back to New Zealand. She was desperate to find a good church and so for him and started to chat to me about where a good church might be. She was just one of the most godly, humble, on fire for Jesus people you could come across. We'd often have Bible study at her house, us as 19 and 20 year olds. And we'd come in and she'd be sitting in a chair in the corner, just having read the word. And she'd look up and she'd say, just isn't, isn't God so amazing? And you're like, yes. And then she'd tell you something she'd be reading and she just flowed out this joy of God and His Word. And she couldn't help but share what she'd been reading about. And then after Bible study, often we'd, we'd, she'd kind of come around, she'd be pottering in the kitchen, and we'd ask her questions. She'd share her wisdom and, and pray for us and care for us and offer us food. And she just, she was like a spiritual mother to us. How great it is to see the honor that comes from those women who are older, who act as spiritual mothers within the church. But our society today treats mothers as second-rate citizens, doesn't it? I mean, for those women who, who don't go back to the workforce after they have children, it's kind of like society says, oh, you're stuck at home. Or, or, or worse still, you're volunteering at church. It's a shame you couldn't get a job and be a, a powerful, empowered woman in the workplace. Ladies, I want to say to you, do not buy the lie that society says that motherhood is some substandard thing. Motherhood is one of the greatest gifts God can give us. And while He doesn't give every woman the, the gift of natural children, He does give all Christian women the opportunity of being a spiritual mother to His church family. And you look around and there's, there's women who are older than you investing into you as younger women here at Uni Church. Maybe it's just Marielle. I don't know. Maybe she's the grandmother of Uni Church. <laughs> 
don't everyone flock to Marielle? But, but there's a sense where there's something good about that, isn't there? Where, where we're able to invest into one another, and there's a right respect for those that have gone before us. Men and women, don't sideline mothers, whether they're natural or spiritual, but treat them with respect in God's family. And women, please, please see the blessing you can be, that you're called to be, to men and women in the church. Like we saw in chapter 2, is where Paul talks about women learning, that women are to learn so they might, might teach and encourage and invest in other women and disciple one another in the church. One of the biggest griefs I have is that in our society generally, the workforce, the secular workforce, gets the best part of mothers as they return to work. There's nothing wrong with returning to work after having kids. There's nothing wrong with it. Many of us need that to be able to live. But before you think about returning to the workplace, how great would it be to stop and think, how can I be a spiritual mother to a family that will last even longer than my earthly family? How can I invest in this family, in what matters and what lasts? Don't drink society's Kool-Aid. Hear what God says and the way we ought to act towards one another. Such women deserve to be honoured by men and women. Like older men are to be looked up to, so ought older women as mothers be looked up to. But there's one more relational dynamic Paul wants us to recognise, and that's the relationship between Timothy and younger women. Timothy, point number four, is to exhort the younger women as sisters with purity. Here, Paul qualifies what the relationship between Timothy, who's the leader in the church, is to look like between the younger women, the, the women in the church that are younger with him, is to treat the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters with all purity. Right, there's, a, there's a special care here that he's supposed to have that is due to all sisters that Paul wants to point out. And that's purity. It's not that you can be impure with brothers. It's fine to be brothers, spit in each other's face, do all sorts of dodgy stuff. But with the sisters, no, no, no one go there. No. But I think there's a particular thing Paul is protecting here, purity, that our sisters especially deserve. Now, I only have one sister. She's a sister-in-law. But if there's a word that describes my natural relationship with her, it would be protectiveness. Um, Sarah and I started dating at the very end of high school, and Sarah's sister was a younger sister. And so, you know, as she went through dating relationships, man, there were points where both Sarah and I were like, no, that guy is not good. You do not want to hang out with that guy. Sometimes maybe, maybe a little overprotective, um, but there was a sense where we really loved her and cared for her. As our boys are growing up, um, Daniel's 16, Ethan's 15, I've tried to drill into them that if anyone is treating your, your two sisters, Lara's um, 11 and Amy's 10, if anyone is treating your sisters in a way that's inappropriate or they're hurting them, you have my full permission to stop that with whatever force it takes. And the boys are like, you mean? I'm like, yes. <laughs> Seriously. If someone is hurting your sisters, you stop in and, and you say, no, you, 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 you hurt her, you deal with us. And then me, come and see me and I'll talk about it. Paul tells Timothy to have a care and concern for the younger women in the church and to act in a way he would act to his own sister with absolute purity, no confusion, just as a sister. It would be inappropriate to relate to your own sister like she was your girlfriend or your wife, wouldn't it? To walk home and say to your sister, hey, how you doing? Do you want to hang out later, catch a movie? 
we can like, you know, kiss. <laughs> now, thankfully, we're all kind of squirming a little bit here, right? There are laws against that for a reason, right? Society recognizes that it's inappropriate to marry your sister or to do married stuff with your own sister. You to protect your family. And so it ought to be in God's church, the family. It should be a place where our sisters feel safe. We should be able to share the ups and downs of life and encourage other sisters and brothers and fathers and mothers to live appropriately in the faith. We ought to be able to pray for one another and not be like, oh, are they trying to crack onto me? What's going on here? I think sometimes as as an attempt to safeguard purity, men can kind of treat Christian sisters like they've got the plague. It's like, whoa, I can't go near you. If I talk to you, I'm probably sinning in some way, right? It's inappropriate. And you're like, no, is that how you treat your sister? If it is, come and have a chat. We've got to talk through some stuff a little later. I'd love to have that chat with you, as would probably lots of sisters in the room right now, right? But we're family. We need to be wise in our interactions as brothers and sisters, We've got a responsibility to be in one another's lives, to care for one another, to have this complementary nature of God making us as men and women working together. Paul says to Timothy, this is good. Just do it with purity. And as the temptation comes to treat a sister or a brother who isn't your spouse like a spouse, when you're tempted to look for too long, to hover for too long, to share too much of yourself, to be flirty with your eyes or your body language or to daydream and play out scenarios with someone who's not your spouse, stop and remind yourself, she is my sister, right? Give off nothing but brother and sister vibes. That's it. You're like, I'm vibing brother and sister vibes all the time as you're having these relationships. That's what's coming out. I'm not giving off any other signals, nothing else like that. In the church, it should be a safe place to be like, hey, we're in this together. Now, if they are single and you're single, and you kind of, there's, there's maybe a little something more there, sure, why not make them your spouse? Great, have a chat. You know, start dating with a view to kind of maybe getting married. But that's when you can treat them in a spouse-like way is when they are your spouse, Right? This kind of brings up a question around dating. Here we go. <laughs> no questions coming now. Dating really is the period where you've worked out that someone's probably someone that you'd like to marry, but you just want to work that out a bit more. And so you're spending some time and you're saying, hey, we're kind of trying this out. We're still brother and sister. Uh, dating is helpful, but it's kind of signifying that, hey, we're moving towards, I, th- I think I could possibly marry this person. And so now I'm, I'm kind of in a relationship, sharing a little bit more deeply, but but I'm still acting with absolute purity. Here's my line. I worked on this really hard. You ready? Remember, until you are Mrs. and Mr., you're brother and sister. (laughs) Yeah. Someone can make a shirt with that. Until you're Mrs. and Mr., you're still brother and sister. So keep clear boundaries. Think, would I be happy doing this with my sibling? If that's inappropriate, again, come and chat with me later. But for all of us, we do need to ask in our relationships, is there someone for you right now that's popping into your head that isn't your spouse, that's possibly inappropriate? It will definitely be the case throughout your life that that will be what happens. Satan loves to put things in front of us to say, yes, this is better, this is greener. Can I urge you today to talk to someone about it? Whenever that happens, bring it up. A friend of mine used to say that for guys, if, if you know, a, a, a guy doesn't notice someone who, who walks past a woman who, who is a good-looking woman and doesn't notice her, 
he's probably dead, right? Because guys are kind of driven visually. It's not a sin to go, hey, I'm attracted to that person. It's what you do next. Treat them as a sister until he's your mister. But that's wrong. It rhymed though. (laughs) But you know what I mean. (laughs) The rhyming part of my brain won over the logic. (laughs) Talk to someone about it. Uh, Early on in our marriage, Sarah and I decided that um, we kind of had this guideline rule that was helpful where um, I wouldn't get to know a woman more than Sarah knew that same woman. So the depth of my relationship with that woman would be limited by the depth of Sarah's relationship with that same woman. And that way it was a good kind of guideline. And we did the same thing for guys. Sarah would get to know guys to the same depth that that I knew that guy. That didn't mean we couldn't have deep relationships. It meant we we did and we could go deep. But we'd be doing that together as a couple. It's been super helpful for us. Uh, It's helpful just to kind of check those guidelines as we go forward. Now, they're not in the Bible. It's just a helpful thing that we've had. But we've, we've found it to be helpful in that area. Well, hopefully that's answered all your questions. And we get to the last bit of this whole passage, where Paul lands with instructions to Timothy on widows. Now, at first, this seems like, what is going on here? This is weird. Why so long on widows? You've given us two verses for every age demographic breakup and relational breakup that there is, and then 13 verses on widows. Like, is there a massive problem in Ephesus? All the guys are dying. All the ladies are going around like at night putting poison in their drinks and they're, they're all kind of gone. Is there some sort of kind of cultural issue going on here? No. The principle that we see as we move to this next section is that in God's family, like the natural family, we ought to look out for the vulnerable. We ought to care for the vulnerable amongst us. So point number five, treat the vulnerable with care. Treat the vulnerable with care. 1 Timothy 5 verse 3. Support widows who are genuinely in need. Right? In the first century, state-based social security and the pension, they weren't a thing. In fact, the atheist Tom Holland, who wrote the book Dominion, is a non-Christian. He says this, he argues that the responsibility to care for the marginalized and vulnerable in society has undeniably come from Christianity. In other words, this idea that we have social security and look after the marginalized was not a thing that was naturally in society. It's because of Christianity that we've taken that on. The way that widows were looked after was by their family in the first century. That's one of the reasons why barrenness was such a big deal because there was no family to look after a woman when she could no longer look after herself. She had no children. And so we see here Paul gives a special concern, firstly, for natural families to look after their parents. So the first thing we see is that we should look after our parents in our own natural blood family. Look at 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. They're pretty strong words, aren't they? Sometimes we need to outsource care to parents as they get old. Well, they need professional care, but we should never outsource our love or our provision or our looking after them. But I think our tendency can want to be, oh, it's just hard. I just want to remove them from having to deal with it. It's just an inconvenience. In Matthew 15, Jesus talks about the Pharisees who used the technicality to get out of caring for their family. They said, look, we've given all our money. We've set it aside for the Lord. It's Corbin, right? So we've set it aside for him. So we we can't support our families because we're giving to God. Look at us, how great we are. Sometimes I think we can do that in the way we treat our families. 
We can say, I don't have any responsibility to you. I'm, I'm spending all my time at church. We don't actually spend time at church or with our church family. We just, we just kind of say it and use it as an excuse not to love them. Paul's words here are pretty strong. If anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I mean, God the Father is provided by us, by God the Son dying on the cross. He's looked after us, and we go, no, but our family doesn't matter. How can we get the gospel? That's worth asking yourself, is there a legitimate responsibility to your natural family that you might be in danger of neglecting right now? Sometimes families can abuse that kind of idea of they need looking after. You know, pr- providing for and honoring them to some families looks like lobster on every second Monday, right? You've got to be at our house for four nights of the week, or you've got to take us on overseas holidays, and it becomes onerous. You can't go to church because you've got to provide for us, we, your family. And some families, particularly who, who don't know and love the Lord Jesus, can be like, no, you, you can't do this. But we've got to remember Jesus' words at that point, because they're strong and they're kind of in the other direction. In Luke 14, he says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what's going on there? That seems like they're contradictory, right? What Jesus is saying here is he's using hyperbole. He's saying that Jesus must be a million miles above every other earthly relationship. Right? Compared to the way we treat Jesus, we are to hate our earthly family. But when you actually keep reading through the Scriptures, you see if you love Jesus, and you put him as number one, a million miles above everyone else, you're then going to love your family and care for them because you're serving Jesus as number one. But for those widows in the church family who have no children, what's our responsibility? Well, it's like the natural family. We're to have a responsibility to care for those who are really in need. Notice, it is those who are in the church family we have the primary responsibility for. Not just everyone in the world, but particularly those who are in this church family. Look at verse 9 of 1 Timothy 5. No widow is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she is at least 60 years old and has been the wife of one husband and is well known for good works. That is, she's brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet and helped the afflicted and devoted herself to every good work. Sounds a little harsh to start with here. There's a certain list and you either make it or not. But what Paul's trying to do here is is two things. One, he's trying to care for those who are truly in need in the church family. And not just those who claim they want it or claim they need it. But secondly, he's also protecting the church for its primary purpose, which is proclaiming Jesus and seeing each and every person remain in Jesus until his return. And so it's worth reading again to kind of get the principles of what's behind this. Look at verse 11. Refuse to enroll younger widows. For when they are drawn away from Christ by desire, they want to marry and will therefore receive condemnation because they've renounced their original pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, going from house to house. They're not only idle, but they're also gossips and busybodies saying things they shouldn't say. Therefore, I want the younger women to marry, to have children, manage their households and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. If any believing woman has widows in her family, let her help them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can help widows in genuine need. Now, it's tricky here to know what these widows' original pledge was. I mean, it's strong words, right? When they're drawn away from Christ by desire that they want to marry, will therefore receive condemnation because they've renounced their original pledge. 
Stricky don't know what that pledge was. It could have been a pledge of singleness. I've pledged to be single. I'm going to serve God. But then, oh, I really like this guy. I don't want to marry him. So they go off and marry him. And that's all sorted. But it's hard to work out why that would be receiving condemnation, particularly because he says in verse 14, I want younger women to marry. So he can't be saying that just marrying someone's a problem. No, it's most likely that these people are so focused on being married that they'll marry anyone. They'll marry someone who doesn't trust Jesus, someone who's got a different worldview and end up denying their pledge to Jesus, their faithfulness to Him. They'll walk away from Him. And he says in verse 15, for some have already turned away to follow Satan. What makes the most sense is they're so focused on marriage that they'll get married at any cost. Ladies, do not marry a non-Christian guy. Don't do flirt to convert. The missionary dating thing. It is not what God's Word holds out. It is helpful. It won't help you. And guys, it's the same. Don't think, I'll win them to the Lord. I'll wrestle them into it. Sometimes God has done that in relationships. And wow, isn't God amazing and gracious? But in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that if someone is widowed, they are to marry in the Lord. And here I think you're seeing what's at risk is walking away from our Savior because there's something greater than Him, and that's our marriage, and that's not the case. The principle here is God's family needs rules to work out how to love one another God's way. And as we operate as a church, we've got to think through the way we look after not just the widows, but the vulnerable amongst us in our society. Particularly, I think, that the age that are amongst us. Those who can't speak for themselves. That's why for us as a church, child protection is, is so important. You know, we, we get police checks on everyone who works with kids because we want to make sure there isn't a history of abuse in any way. We, 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 have, um, we, we only have women work with kids under five. So if you're a guy, we go, sorry, because the vast majority of all abuse cases are men with regard to children. We just go, it's just at this point, loving to say, hey, we don't want to put you in that situation, even though you might be the, you know, the best, greatest preschool teacher in the world. But we just go, hey, we want to set up some guidelines that are going to be helpful to protect the vulnerable in our church. We care about one another because we're family. We care about those who are attempted in this sort of way, and we want to provide them with ways to keep serving and loving but in ways they're not tempted. We need to take the principles here of, of, of relating to one another as a church family and thinking about the vulnerable in our society, particularly with our church society, and think through how we might view and set up our church to love and look after them. The question for us today is this. Do we see what we're doing right here as family? As you look around this room, do you look at one another and go, hey, we're in this together? brother, sister, mother, father. We, we, we're in this to keep growing together as a church family. Sure, we're a big family. Like, I'm not sure if any of us have this bigger kind of nuclear family. Pretty cool if you did. But, but we're still family. You know, is there a sense that you're embarrassed by your church family? That, that, that you're not kind of fully committed to your church family because you're like, oh, it's not as important. That There's some sense where apathy and a half-baked commitment comes up. You know, I'll come to church when I feel like I can. And you know, are we treating church as an important family gathering? We don't miss meeting together. Tonight we've seen that, like it or not, God's local church family is permanent and eternal. And it's also precious, so precious that Jesus gave his life for his church. So Paul encourages Timothy to value God's household in its order of relationships, that it matters the way we treat others. 
that we too might see God's plan for our flourishing. That we might not miss family gatherings and pull back from our God-given privileges and responsibilities of, of loving and caring for one another and encouraging one another. And that we might give ourselves to this household because like it or not, we are family. Why don't you join with me and ask God to help us see that reality and to live it out as his people here at Uni Church. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for calling us into this awesome and wonderful and amazing family we call Uni Church. We thank you for the hope of the gospel that unites us, that, that because of that we, we have this certain hope of eternity. We can call you our Father and Jesus our brother and your spirit dwells within us. Father, please give us wisdom as we seek to operate rightly within the relationships we have, that we might treat older men and women as fathers and mothers, that we might operate in a way that is, that is helpful as we invest into one another's lives, that we'd be encouraging and not look down on anyone but across to our younger brothers and sisters, so we might be standing firm in you on that last day. Let us treat all our sisters here with absolute purity, that we might be seeking one another's good as we have deep and rich relationships, as we teach and admonish one another with your word, would you see us be a church family that's committed to you, that thrives because your word is at our heart. May you help us to say no to sin, to say sorry when we need to say sorry, to, to rebuke and correct and train and encourage so that Jesus' name might be held high. And you might see us persevere to the end. Would you help us to be the family you made us to be? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.